The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Ellen Wald, returning champion. Ellen Wald, a header on the Twitter space. I think I want to say a year ago, Ellen. But for those who aren't familiar with the background, Ellen, introduce yourself. Who are you? Which background? How did you get involved interested in the energy space, the mineral space, and what are you doing growing? Yeah, sure. So believe it or not, my background is actually in history. I am trained as a, an academic historian. I have a PhD in history, but I studied energy history, actually. I wrote my dissertation about American and British oil companies in the Middle East in the 1940s, 50s, and a little bit into the 60s. And so that's really how I got plunged into the energy sphere. And I can definitely say that what's going on now is super exciting. And I just love following, you know, what's happening now. I am no longer in academia and I started a consulting firm, Transversal Consulting, where we provide boutique services to all sorts of different clients in the energy sphere about geopolitics and energy markets, regulatory issues, you know, you name it, we're on top of it. And recently I also got involved in a new venture called Washington Ivy Advisors, where we're doing new kind of advocacy work for more traditional I would say legacy energy, but but all sorts of energy issues, oil, natural gas, and really trying to get across the message that even in a world where there's a great push for, you know, carbon neutral and net zero and renewables, that our lifestyles really demand that we still use fossil fuels and really remind people what the benefits actually are of these types of energies. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Energized Economy. And I write a variety of different publications. I've written in Barron's, in Bloomberg, Investing.com, and a whole host of other places as well. Okay, so we're going to get into critical minerals and rare earth, but I, I want to get your take on oil markets here because there's been an interesting sort of little bit of a resurgence going on in commodities across the board, oil in particular. Where are we in terms of just supply and demand dynamics of the cycle? Yeah, this is a really interesting time right now because we're still kind of in this post-COVID recovery era, or as I would say, kind of the new unknown, trying to figure out, you know, where we're going to be after production and demand plunged so much. And I think what we're seeing is that we're in a period where in the beginning of this year, we really saw forecasts that were saying how much oil demand was going to surge this year. I mean, there was talk of China, of demand really outpacing supply, prices in the triple digits. And I think we're still in a place where we're 
coming to terms or trying to come to terms with the fact that's not materializing. And at the time, in the beginning of the year, I said, you know, there's no indication that China's just suddenly going to rip war back. Much more likely, they'll have a very uneven kind of recovery. And that's definitely what we're seeing, although possibly even worse than that. And I do think that the lack of data and good data about China is definitely impacting this. And then when you throw in the whole you know, Russia, Ukraine issues, everything in the oil market kind of looks different from the way that it did previously. And so I think we're in a period where we're still having corrections because of what people had anticipated versus what's actually materializing. And what's really interesting is that today, Saudi Arabia just came out and said that they're going to extend their voluntary 1 million barrel a day cut to the month of September with the possibility of deepening cuts. And that's really interesting because a lot of big organizations, the IEA, you know, other other banks and whatnot are forecasting that going into the second half of this year, you know, and, and we're already in it, but into the autumn and winter, they're forecasting that we're going to have a supply crunch. Now, if, you know, if Saudi Arabia see the need to cut more than a million barrels a day. And, and they don't necessarily want to do that. Remember, they want to sell oil, you know, unless there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily know about in terms of technical issues there. The fact that they see that there may be a need to cut even more, I think should tell us something about what they see about what's going on in China, because they have a lot of very deep connections that other oil companies don't there. And if they think that demand from China is not going to be that strong, then this is the kind of move that they might make. So I think that we should pay attention to what they're doing as a signal of what may be in store for China. So actually, that's interesting. I think it's been one of the more kind of perplexing dynamics. I mean, you look at China, it looks like they're headed for outright deflation. And everyone's been, you know, waiting, including me, by the way, I've written about this for the POC to do some kind of stimulus to counter or the fiscal side to counter. If what you're saying is true, which it makes total sense, then we could all be waiting for a while if those that are closer to this are saying, well, you know what, they're not going to actually stimulate. So we got to keep cutting oil production. Exactly. And I think that, you know, when, you know, we don't think about the Saudis, you know, we think about Russia as supplying a lot of oil to China right now. And yes, Russia has been supplying a lot of oil to China, but Saudi Arabia has really been developing its connections with China for a long time now. I mean, Aramco's interest in China goes all the way back before, you know, back to when, you know, China, they had one road coming out of the airport of Beijing and most people were getting around on bicycles. I mean, that's when Aramco started getting interested in China. So they've really laid the groundwork. They have, you know, Aramco sends, you know, very bright students there to learn Chinese, to familiarize themselves with China. This is a huge and very important market for them. And they have a lot of joint ventures in China where they have guaranteed amounts of crude that they're sending them. So if they think that they need to cut production and that the Chinese are not going to be buying as much oil, they probably have a very good sense of what's going on in China. I do wish they would elaborate a little more, but, you know, Aramco has no reason to. Why should they share information with everybody else that they have gained through years and years of, you know, deep association there? So my sense is that, you know, they're not just doing this willy-nilly as a way to push up oil prices. They don't want oil prices to be too high. Prices in the triple digits are not good for them. They want they probably want higher than the 70s or low 70s, but they don't want triple digits. This isn't just a ploy to push prices up. 
I think it means that they do see something on the horizon. What about the interaction with Japan? So I keep on hitting on this risk of a kind of a unwind of the carry trade because oil denominated yen, the weaker the yen get, you know, the more likely BOJ has to step in because Japan is, I think, the fourth or fifth largest importer of oil in the world. Anything interesting just in terms of that? I know everyone talks about China, but I feel like the dynamic with Japan might be even more important. I think Japan is a very important, you know, importer in Asia of crude oil. You know, they don't you know, produce much there. And for a while, you know, the Saudis had a very big oil storage facility actually in Japan. I think that, you know, they see Japan kind of, I wouldn't say they see Japan just like Europe, but they see them more as akin to Europe in terms of the developed economy there. And they don't see, I think, that much potential for oil demand to grow there. I think that, that for the Saudis, you know, their focus is on China and now also on India because India has a lot of potential for rising demand. I do think, though, that Japan can kind of be a bellwether sometimes, especially, as you mentioned, in terms of the monetary issues there, monetary policy there. But in general, it's not such, I think it's not such a big market for them that they're that concerned about at this point. Okay, so I want to go to the name of the space around critical minerals, rare earths, terms that are often referenced a lot in the media. I don't know how many people really understand what it encapsulates for that terminology. So just for the audience, just level the playing field. What is considered a critical mineral, a rare earth? And you know, why does it kind of broadly matter? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one of the issues, so so rare earths, I would say, are, are critical minerals. There's all sorts of different terms, you know, that they like to use. We're talking about, generally, we're talking about lithium and cobalt, graphite, germanium, you know, neodymium, samarium, beryllium. There are a lot of these rare earths. Now, most people at this point, I think, are focused mostly on cobalt and lithium because those are used in in batteries and especially in, you know, EV batteries. But it's even more than just that in graphite. One of the things that I think we all know is that China is very much in control of the supply chain for a lot of these rare earths, particularly cobalt. There's a lot of cobalt mining that goes on in Africa and China has really kind of taken the kind of control or I would say has really gotten the lion's share of the market share there. And the conditions that they under which these mines are built and operate are pretty abysmal. And yet we're still getting most of our car batteries from China. So this is a supply chain where Chinese companies invest in these mines in Africa. They mine the stuff, they take it back to China. They produce these batteries and then they sell them in the U.S. And we're not just talking about batteries, we're also talking about solar panels and all sorts of other things. And it's, it's particularly problematic because, you know, if, if the Chinese are controlling a lot of this supply chain, then it's not just an issue, I think, for the electric battery, electric car battery market, but these are also substances and minerals that are used in a lot of very important national security devices. And we're talking about, you know, things that are used in semiconductors, things that are used in weapon systems and sensors and communications, propulsion. I mean, you know, you name it, like they're used in this. And so we're not just talking about, you know, a threat to say Biden's green energy EV plan. We're talking at this point about concern about whether our, you know, military and defense are going to have enough of these materials to have adequate, you know, sensors and weapon systems and things like that. So I think it's actually far worse 
concerning than the general populace understands. When you use that term, the conditions are abysmal, I'm assuming you mean from the standpoint of, you know, the, the treatment of the workers, right? The human rights kind of aspect of it. It's both the human rights aspect, but it's also the environmental aspect. I mean, we're talking basically about mines that are basically, you know, as I don't use this term lightly, but it's basically like raping the earth. I mean, they're absolutely destroying the, you know, ecosystems that they're in. And I'm not, you know, a lot of times we think that like, you know, climate and carbon emissions are the only thing that matters now in the environment. We're talking about, you know, contaminated water supply and, you know, so we're not just talking about human rights violations, but it's also destroying the environment. And I do think that's why, in part, why we're seeing a push for more mining in the U.S. But I think it's very important that, you know, we take a very serious look at what the potential for critical mineral mining in the U.S. is. And it's not good. I mean, the fact is that it's taken years to get a lithium mine permitted in Nevada. You know, we're not going to do large scale mining for rare earths in the U.S. It's just not going to happen. I mean, think about how long it takes to get a pipeline permitted and built. You think that just because, you know, we use lithium to make EV batteries that somehow more clean and it's going to be green lighted. I mean, we're going to have massive, you know, legal challenges to these things. And the fact is that we don't have enough of those minerals in the United States anyway. Really, I think what would be a better plan is to build more strategic partnerships with other countries who are more friendly, at least in a geopolitical sense, to the United States than China and develop other supply chains, not necessarily domestically, but other supply chains, you know, to to mine these minerals and produce the, you know, refine them and produce the things that we need that maybe not will challenge China, but will at least provide alternative sources. And we have to recognize, I think we can't do this by ourselves. This is not the case of, oh, we can just rely on our own domestic production. No, not going to happen. Better to, you know, forge partnerships and do this kind of mining and stuff in countries that were at least have better relations than we have with China. Okay. So, so, and China's obviously been doing this for a while. I've, I've seen these stories, you know, for many years around China's sort of focus around Africa in particular for minerals and rare earths. But what parts of the globe tend to be richest in terms of the abundance of lithium, abundance of cobalt? So we've also got, you know, these minerals in South America in some places. And that's actually, I think, a really good area. You know, we often forget that, you know, South America is in our hemisphere. And, you know, here's the historian in me coming out. But a long time ago, we had something called the Monroe Doctrine, which a lot of people think was basically like license for America to be colonialist in South America. But when you look at the way that it was issued within its historical context, it was actually designed to keep Britain out of this hemisphere and out of South America and designed to keep European powers from being imperialistic there. And so really, you know, if you look at our own hemisphere, we could do so much more with our neighbors. And, you know, it would be beneficial even to us, you know, as the United States to have better developed relations and a better developed economies of our neighbors. You know, so say in in Chile, there are our mines and the demand for these minerals is actually harming indigenous farming and in, I think, Bolivia as well, indigenous farming, you know, if we're such, if you want to say we're so enlightened in terms of our business practices, then can't we find a way to both extract these minerals that are needed, but also protect the native agricultural practices of these countries? Wouldn't that be better 
you know, for our hemisphere as in general. Australia is another place, Canada even. These are all places that we, you know, should have, can have better relations, should have, and can also work. Yes, it might be more expensive than the Chinese made ones, but, you know, we know that American made solar panels are way more expensive than the Chinese ones. You know, if we want to have better labor practices, have better environmental practices, that costs money, but we actually have to go and do it. So, you know, you know, it's not so much an issue of cost so much as it is actually doing it. And so I, I would say that there is a potential, you know, to get in there. Now, can Western companies start doing mining in Africa? I'm, I'm not so sure, but it certainly would be something that is something that people can look into because, you know, there may be African countries out there that have these deposits. Afghanistan was a great potential for this, but I think we blew that. Excuse me, I think we blew that one pretty big uh, and there's no way that U.S. companies are ever going to get into Afghanistan to do any kind of rare earth mining. But the potential, we could have done something if we played it better. And for lack of a way of saying it, it sounds like there's also kind of an optics in terms of how much the West could try and do, right? Whether it's Africa or Afghanistan, for lack of a better way of saying it, there's maybe not the best way of saying it, but there's baggage. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. All right, culturally. Oh, huge baggage. I think that, you know, with Africa, we can definitely maybe overcome some things. With Afghanistan, forget it. You know, if we really wanted to help Afghanistan develop its economy when we were there and do mining for these things in a way that was environmentally more sustainable and things like that, we could have done that. We didn't. We clearly didn't have an interest. I think that we really blew that because now China is going to be the one doing deals with the Taliban to extract lithium there. They don't care. They don't care about the Taliban. As long as the Taliban, you know, adheres to whatever deals they they make, they don't care that they're doing business with the Taliban. Let's talk about in practice what, you know, sort of deal making looks like. I mean, I'm going to make the assumption that, you know, with China forging their, these relationships in Africa, they're probably not going to be as beholden to laws around bribing, as an example, versus the West, right? So so what what's actually happening behind the scenes? So I think what we're seeing is that some of the mines there are maybe owned by or are partially, you know, owned by African governments, but they're all partnered with Chinese companies behind the scenes or not so behind the scenes, maybe more upfront. But there's a lot of Chinese companies that are involved in these things. So, you know, there are big mining companies, you know, like, say, Glencore and Anglo-American, for example. They have global operations. They could, you know, go out and do these things. But instead, we've got you know, a lot of Chinese companies getting involved in this. And so, you know, and they don't care about human rights. They don't really care about the environment. They don't care about best practices or anything like that. And so even if it seems like the mine, say, is owned by, you know, an African company, in reality, a lot of the Chinese companies have big stakes in it. And then those the things that they produce, the minerals that they have, end up getting shipped to China to be, you know, produced into and made into 
these batteries and China has many gigafactories producing batteries all over. They have way more than Europe. And even a lot of Europe's EV gigafactories are actually owned by Chinese Communist Party affiliated companies. So they're really just in this industry so deep. That's another thing. So we heard recently that Exxon is interested in extracting lithium from in Arkansas. Okay, so they're saying, oh, they bought this company that's doing it. And so they we had news and they are now talking to car companies that make EVs. So they're talking to Tesla and Ford and whatnot. Well, Tesla and Ford don't make their own batteries. They buy batteries from other places like Panasonic and Samsung and whatnot. So even if it that seems like a great way to say, oh, get it in America, keep it in America. It's not that, you know, these companies are still getting a lot of their batteries. And I still have a lot of deals with companies, with Asian companies, some of which get their materials from China. It's all, you know, if you try to make a flow chart of it, there's always some aspect of China or Chinese company or a Chinese communist owned company in there. And so, and they've been at this for a long time. This isn't something that came up, you know, in the past, you know, two or three years. This has been going on for a while. And I think that, you know, there was a sense that like this either wasn't so much of a priority, they didn't lay the groundwork, but this is definitely something that that had they've been getting into for a while. And if we want to develop alternative networks, at least, you know, for national security preferences, I think we need to really get started on that and make it a priority, at least, you know, when we talk about, say, negotiations. So one of the things that I studied as a historian was how the government or at least the State Department and other parts and of the U.S. government assist companies when they're trying to do business ventures abroad. And you like to think, oh, business and government, they're separate. No, they're definitely not separate. They're always working together, mostly because for national security interests, for general interests of the U.S., because they're U.S. citizens, there's a lot of there's a lot of co-mingling going on there. and. In the period that I studied, which was, you know, Aramco going into Saudi Arabia in the 1950s, the American ambassador in Saudi Arabia was critical to helping the American companies, you know, maintain, negotiate with the Saudis. And basically there were times where the Saudis wouldn't sit down with the oil men from Aramco with the executives and everything had to go through the American ambassador and, and the American embassy there. So... There's a huge role here, I think, both for the government to assist companies. And I don't mean just monetarily by saying, oh, here's some tax breaks for doing this. I don't think that's necessarily the answer. But if it's a priority and a national security priority, which it was in the 50s, getting oil from Saudi Arabia was considered a very important national security objective because that was when the Cold War was heating up. There was actually a air base in Saudi Arabia, right near where Aramco is located. And so it was seen as a very important potential refueling place for planes going to both to Korea for the Korean War, but also in the event of some kind of Cold War turning hot issue. And so the idea that we had oil in the Middle East that was accessible to our Navy and to our aviation sector was considered a really important national security aspect. So if that was considered that back then, shouldn't the rare earths also be considered a national security issue? I think it, it is. And there's a role for American diplomats to help American or Western companies 
you know, do deals with other countries to mine their critical minerals in ways that are, you know, better, at least for the environment and for the populace than these Chinese companies. I guess the question is, it it sounds a little dramatic to say, is it too late? But that's kind of the direction I want to go. The reason I ask that is, yeah, obviously China's got an edge in terms of how long they've been structuring these types of deals. And, you know, you can argue that maybe we're getting closer also to a confrontation with Taiwan and China, and maybe critical minerals and rare earths end up being sort of a bargaining chip. Is it, am I off on the idea that, you know, yeah, sure, the U.S. can try to accelerate effort, but we're so far behind relative to the timeline for geopolitical risk on China that it's just going to be hard for it to make a difference? That's a really good point. And I think that, you know, there are things that you got to give up on. They're too late. Afghanistan, we're too late on that. We burn that bridge. Never going to happen. With China, I think that there, that, we're definitely not too late, but we're a little bit behind. We're kind of, it's like we're in a king race and we had to start behind everyone else. And there's a bit of a current pushing us back. But that doesn't mean it's insurmountable. And I think that if we make it a priority to, and what pains me so much is that it just seems like that everything that's being done, or at least everything that we know about that's being done is all about tax breaks, the IRA legislation, all, it's all about tax breaks for companies. Well, this tax break for EV, for individuals to get EVs, it doesn't even come into play unless you buy an EV that is has most of its parts or almost all of its parts made in America or by American companies. Well, very few EVs have that because most of the battery parts come from overseas or China. So why would you create a tax break that most people can't access before making sure that people can actually access it? Why aren't they putting the effort into making sure that American car or the cars that are available to Americans are actually made or can be made using, you know, American mined or at least lithium that's mined by American companies, even if it's mined in other places or that there are American components that. So it just seems like like they, they put policy ahead of, you know, of strategy or infrastructure or whatnot. They just, you know, put this tax break in place that can't be used. And the threat is also, you know, if there's a new administration next year and a new, you know, legislative body, this could in years to come, that could completely overturned before they even get a chance to make to, for it to be useful to the American public because they can't get the parts that are being made in the U.S. So it just seems like a very backwards policy. And maybe there is a lot more going on behind the scenes than we know. At least my experience as a historian says that a lot of the behind the scenes stuff is technically is classified. And so we don't necessarily find out about it until it gets declassified 30 years later. But my sense is that we're definitely behind in that area. We can get ahead and we can at least make headway. I don't think it's too late, but we got to really make it a priority. So reset the room for the remaining minutes. Everybody, please make sure you follow Ellen Wald here on Twitter. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, don't hesitate to click on that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. Since you mentioned policy, is there a sense of which party in power is more likely to affect better relationships to kind of secure the rarer side or is it independent of political affiliation? You know, that's a good question. I think that it, it should be something that's independent of political affiliation. You know, when we talk about diplomacy and, you know, it does seem like a lot of the big flashy things are very much politically dependent, like the Iran deal. You know, the Republicans don't want to 
you know, have a rapprochement with Iran, the Democrats do. So things kind of happen uh, along that. But a lot of the, you know, career people in the State Department, the career foreign service people, they're there independent of who the political party is. And there are a lot of longstanding, you know, things that go on that are really irrespective of, of politics and of what even the political you know, the politicians are saying. So a good example of this happened with the, when the Saudis back in last September, when right before the midterm elections, the Biden administration kept saying, oh, we really, we need the Saudis to, you know, we need OPEC to increase production. We need to bring oil prices down. And the truth was that things were not looking so great. Prices were probably going to fall anyway. And Saudi Arabia was like, no, we're not doing that. And the Biden administration See, they were livid. I mean, they got out, got on TV publicly and basically like admonished the Saudis publicly, which is really something that they never, that, that was very rarely done. All of that had always been kind of taken care of in back channels. If an administration or anyone wanted some sort of particular oil policy, it's not something that they would ever come out and say and then say, you know, oh, well, there'll be consequences because you didn't do what we wanted. And I think that was kind of stunning for the Saudis because it seemed like it was very political. Does that mean that that politicians have never tried to manipulate production or get the Saudis to cut or increase productions to affect oil prices or gasoline prices for an election or for political purposes? Of course not. But the fact that it was out in the open and for the diplomats that kind of have the career State Department people, they were it seemed, I think, like they were caught back because that just isn't the way that they've done things, regardless of Democrat. You know, like we're talking like Nixon has done it and Clinton has done it. So both, you know, sides of the aisle have done this. And so I think that it is something that can be that's necessary, regardless of political party, you know. Whether you think that EVs are the answer to the climate issue, which I can be very frank, I don't think that they are the solution to, you know, climate issues, but, you know, their product and lots of people love driving EVs. There are definitely benefits to, you know, driving an EV. And if it's the right choice for you and and what you need a vehicle for, then I absolutely think that they should be available in the market. But the fact is that we also need these critical minerals and mirrors for other things than just EV batteries. They're really important for military things and all the other things that I mentioned. And so it is something that's something that transcends political party. I think that the IRA policy that was passed was very short-sighted in that it basically tried to give people an incentive to buy things that aren't available. And so it would behoove, I think, both sides of the aisle to realize we need, you know, these critical minerals, whether or not, you know, everyone in the U.S. can be driving an EV. um... We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Play out a thought experiment, right? So uh, let's say China just decides to play games and, you know, there are the equivalent of supply chain disruptions, but only when it comes to rare earths. How would that impact, you know, the everyday American? So say China decides to cut off the 
EV battery supply or the supply of certain rare earth minerals. So uh, how does that impact the everyday American? You know, I would say probably the most important impact would be like, if we couldn't get iPhones, that would probably piss people off the most. But there would be riots if that was the case. Yeah. I mean, imagine like the bat, you can get a battery for your iPhone or you can get a new iPhone because they don't have the right materials for the batteries for that. So, and I, that's like a microcosm. Okay. Like the iPhone is a very small battery. Right. And, but we all know because we all charge our phones like all the time, we know that battery, you know, the durability and the capacity of a battery to full charge runs out over time, which is why you need more of this stuff. And the truth is that. For all the things that they say about recycling batteries and all of that, like, come on, you can't actually recycle that. So if you look at the microcosm of the phone battery or the computer battery or whatnot, and then you bring it out to say a car battery, you know, that's a, that requires so much more lithium. I mean, the amount of lithium required for it is huge. I don't remember the actual like ton, you know, amount in, in tons, but we're talking about like massive amounts of this stuff. And if we're putting it all in, in the EVs, then what do we have left for the military, you know, and where are they going to get their supplies of these things to make radar and guided weapon systems and, and all of the, these things that, that they need. And so we could get to a point where everyday products aren't available be, or new ones aren't available because companies can't get this minerals and the rare earths that they need to make these products because, say, the military has requisitioned them because they got to get it first. And that could become problematic. I think that, you know, we saw some of what people experienced during these supply chain issues, at, you know, at the after the pandemic and when things were kind of getting back to normal, we saw a lot of issues with supply chain. I mean, people would try to get, say, like a couch and they'd be like, oh, it can't come for six months because, you know, it's in China or, or whatever and we can't get it. Or there aren't enough trucks that can come into the ports in California to take the things to the United States, you know, across the United States. So you just can't get your new stove or your new, you know, your new washing machine because supply chain. Well, imagine if instead of supply chain, it was we don't have enough copper. We don't have enough cobalt for this. Well, you are going to then see, I think you'll see people trying to like strip these things from other places. Products will become a lot more expensive. Like any product that uses that particular substance will be much more expensive, not just iPhones. Uh, It could really cause a great expense to everyday citizens, especially if the U.S. military decides that, say, they get first pick because like their radar systems or whatever are more important than your iPhone or your electric stove or your whatever you're buying that, you know, or your solar panels for your house or whatnot. We could also see a lot of declines in installing solar panels and solar panel installations. And that could definitely, you know, I'm not, I'm much more realist when it comes to renewable energy and things like that. So I don't believe that, you know, solar energy is going to be able to supply all of our energy needs, but there's absolutely a place for it. And it does provide important, you know, sources of energy in some places where it is, you know, it's a good source. Well, you know, say we want to build more of that, but we can't because we can't get the materials that we need to make those solar panels. So, you know, it basically kind of stops a lot of this policy, a lot of this infrastructure development in its path. The point about if we go to a pure EV world and the reliance on China, I think is actually interesting. It sounds to me like if we keep pushing towards an old EV world and we don't actively try to get ahead of China on the lithium and cobalt front, then we are more vulnerable to China than OPEC. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, think about this. Would you rather be vulnerable to OPEC or to China? I mean, OPEC is an organization. Yeah, they've done some pretty bad things in the past. I mean, lots. I mean, I would say that the vast amount of our oil policy, or at least our politicians, are still experiencing some kind of, you know, shock from the oil shocks. So, yes, we think of OPEC as bad. But the truth is that OPEC is actually an, an organization that has pushes and pulls. It's not just whatever Saudi Arabia wants at the time. It's And they are, especially now, they're very focused on market stability and things like that. And we have to remember also, the United States is the largest oil producer in the world right now. So we're both the largest oil producer and the largest oil consumer. So our interests are not necessarily the opposite of OPEX all the time. It may not be so bad for oil prices to be a little bit higher. And so we just benefit at times from what OPEC does. Well, imagine if China's controlling all of the commodities for a certain thing. You know, there's no discussion there. There's no back and forth. There's no meetings with media coverage to find out what's going on. There's just what China wants. And if China had you know, a certain, it doesn't, if, if China wants to just cut off the U.S. from these things for political reasons, it could, or maybe they're economic. Maybe they just realize that, hey, Europe are much better customers than the U.S. And so we're just going to focus on our European context. Or what if they do the opposite? What if they're like, hey, the market in China for ADs is so much stronger or India or whatnot. We're going to, you know, send most of our stuff there and build up our contacts there. And we're not really going to, you know, do business in Europe, for example. Keeping aside the fact that most of the gigafactories are co-owned, at least by Chinese companies, so it wouldn't be the best economic decision. But I think Europe could be very much affected by a, you know, pullback from China because their EV policies are even more stringent, say, than the U.S. Like they're trying to ban the internal combustion engine by, I think, 2030 in the EU right now. Now, if that's not going to lead them to basically get married to China, then I don't know what else is. I mean, they be- they're basically going to go from being in this, you know, relationship with Russia for oil and gas. They've kind of sort of de- extracted themselves from it. And now they want to jump into bed with China. That that strikes me as not necessarily a good trade-off. Is there some kind of like equivalent of an SPR when it comes to rare earths? I mean, presumably the U.S. government's got some kind of stockpile. So that's a really good question. If they do, if the military has a stockpile, I'm not aware of it. I don't think most people are aware of it, but it would definitely be something that, you know, would be a really good national security thing to consider. I don't know, you know, in terms of what the, you know, I know that this has definitely been recommended. I don't think that we necessarily have one, but I have seen, you know, articles recommending that we get going on this, I wouldn't be surprised if the military has some kind of stockpile somewhere or at least relationships with companies that where they feel like they can provide it. But I don't know what the specifics are in terms of storing this stuff. Can you do you, can you consider a mine that is not, you know, under production? Is that considered a stockpile? Or do you have to have it, you know, somewhat refined? How can you hold these things? It's not, you know, with oil we do it in salt caverns, I know that there's been talk of doing a maybe like a, a natural gas type SPR because our electricity production has become very dependent on natural gas. And it might not be such a bad idea to consider that. I think the logistics likewise are kind of complicated. It's interesting. It may be that we could kind of consider strategic relationships 
as a type of SPR as opposed to actually having a physical SPR of this stuff in the U.S. I know we had, didn't they say how we had like a, a stockpile of masks and a stockpile of respirators, but, you know, leave them too long, they get bad. So I don't know how, I'm not familiar with the logistics in terms of the, the chemical issues there, but it's certainly something to consider or at least to consider having strategic relationships with countries where we can go in and do this. So I know, you know, one of the things we're talking about, manganese is another one, another mineral and apparently you know, South Africa actually holds 40% of manganese reserves. So, you know, we could have better relations with South Africa for this. I think it's a very complicated thing to do because we're talking about so many different minerals. We like to group them under this rare earths, but, and we talk about lithium and cobalt is most important. But like I said, there's all sorts of other ones as well that are very important. And it requires a lot of different moving parts. I would definitely recommend, not that any politicians are calling me, but I would definitely recommend having, you know, at least plans for how to secure these materials and things if needed. If there are any politicians listening to this call, please meet. I'm looking at the, uh, just for comparison, because I'm curious myself, looking at the VanEck, they have an ETF for rare earth strategic metals. And the country allocation, yeah, the two biggest countries are Australia and China. Australia's actually weighted more, and that's you know, mining stocks that are playing office. Could the bulk of it really come from Australia? I mean, I'm just making you something to make hmm. the allocation that Australia is a big part of this. But as you kind of Australia is absolutely a big part of this. Australia is actually really important in terms of mining for a lot of things. I mean, they provide a lot of coal uh, as well. I know coal is bad and we're trying to get rid of coal, but guess what? We still need coal. We still use coal. Lots of countries still use coal. Australia supplies a lot of it. They also supply a lot of natural gas. They were one of the biggest suppliers of natural gas to China. I think what's important when you're dealing with Australia is both to realize like it's really far from the U.S. So incorporating it into the supply chain, I think, is a little bit more challenging. And it has very strong relations with Asian countries already. But given that Australia is and, you know, Speaking again from my kind of historian's eye, Australia is part of the you know family of English-speaking nations. And this was something that Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill talked about when they talked about their deep alliance going into World War II was, you know, there is a shared cultural heritage, a shared language, things like that. I think that when it comes to Australia, that's absolutely something that the U.S. and other, you know, like-minded nations should capitalize on and, you know, go to Australia and really try to build relationships in terms of the mining there and also, you know, Australian expertise in mining and help, you know, help capitalize on that to build better supply chains that don't necessarily include China. And I do think that's something that, you know, I think Australia would like to have a power to balance out China in terms of its trade. So there's definitely the potential there. And it, I don't... I can't say for sure whether it could provide all of the rare earths, but it's definitely a really important source and deepening our strategic and economic ties there would definitely help, you know, reduce dependence on China. Yeah, I'm sure China's aware of that. You can't discount what they know. I mean, they're deeply in this. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's like a war, but you could kind of look at it almost like that. You know, we're not kind of like a race, I don't know if you want to say that. You know, some of the other issues to consider are like security issues. And there are a lot of security issues, like, say, in Africa and also in Afghanistan. But we don't necessarily have those in, with Australia. I mean, yeah, you got to worry about, you know, they have 
crazy bugs and spiders and snakes there. But that's not the same as worrying about, say, Boko Haram or the Taliban. So I think that there's definitely a lot more that could be done there. And also to reach out to other countries like South Africa and build these supply chains, you know, with areas that that in and countries that are not necessarily or, or that want to balance out China. That's another point. You know, once China gets in there, they want to supply a lot of stuff. They want to do their trade in Yuan. They want to be the ones building infrastructure in these countries. And you know, it's a very, for African countries that don't have good infrastructure, they look at this and they're like, hey, what a great prospect because, you know, we can get a lot out of this in terms of development. But a lot of times they end up being very dissatisfied with the quality of the work that Chinese companies do. There's a an opening there for other countries, for the West to, you know, to do development projects and stuff in Africa. I think that there's a very much like there's a, a disdain for that, both because there's there's a disdain for that because they think it might be considered colonialist. But, you know, I think they got to get over that. It's not. And then the other issue is also that is that, you know, we need to also consider that we need to maybe start financing projects in Africa that don't necessarily meet our clean climate standards. So there's a lot of refusal by big organizations and IMF and other organizations. They don't want to finance fossil fuel projects worldwide. You know, we're not going to finance any of these things. Well, guess what? In Africa, if they don't have electricity, but they have oil or coal or gas, they want to develop that and use that to bring electricity to their people who don't have it. And they are not going to care about your climate goals. Like they they want to use these resources that they have for their own development. And Mohamed Barkindo, who used to be the secretary general of OPEC, spoke very eloquently about this and about how fossil fuels really can bring prosperity and lift people out of poverty in Africa. And you have to think, look, if the global institutions that were formed by the West are no longer interested in financing these kinds of projects. Well, where are these countries going to turn to? They're not going to just build wind farms and solar farms out of nowhere. I mean, they're not reliable enough. They're not cheap enough. They're not going to satisfy the power needs of these countries. They're going to look elsewhere for people to finance and do these projects. And that's probably going to be China. And so I think that, you know, we can be on our high horse regarding, you know, climate change and whatnot, but we're going to feel consequences of that. And one of those is China having even deeper infiltration. So say China is financing a power plant and, you know, a oil gas burning power plant, and they want to then get rights to mine, you know, whatever it is. Of course, that country is going to give more consideration to the Chinese company that wants to do the mining as opposed to you know, another another country because they've already got the Chinese building their power plants and all sorts of other things. So I think that's another area to be aware of that by kind of treating these developing nations with this kind of disdain for what they feel that they need to progress, we're boxing ourselves. Ellen, for those who want to track more of your work and see more of your thoughts on things, where would you point them to? Sure. So I'm definitely, I'm on Twitter, not as much as I used to be, but definitely, you know, with relative frequency, I'm at Energized Economy. That's E-N-E-R-G-Z-D Economy. You can also follow my work on my website, lnrworld.com. 
as well as on my other website, transversalconsulting.com. And mostly if, you know, I'm doing something interesting, I will post it on, on Twitter. So definitely keep abreast of that. And also, you know, if you're interested a bit in the history of Aramco and Saudi Arabia and its oil industry, check out my book, which is called Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. And it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and most places you buy books. Good place to wrap this up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Ellen. Again, this will be a podcast on Lead Lag Live. Thank you, Ellen. Appreciate it. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.